This semester, we are in the book of Genesis, uh, the book of beginnings. It's uh, not just the first book. It's not just the book of beginnings because it's the first book of the Bible, but it's actually uh, the word Genesis literally means beginnings. Uh, God giving the beginning of the story to his people. Uh, And so we're not going to be able to go into depth into everything that we look at uh, this semester, but we're going to try to get as far as we can. And tonight we're back in the creation account in Genesis chapter one, but we're going to hone in here on the crown of creation. You and I, man, male and female, made in the image of God. That is the crown of creation. So if you would, read with me here, uh, Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens And over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done. And He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. Let's pray before we look into it. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we ask every week, we pray that you would speak, that by the power of your spirit, we would have ears to hear and hearts to believe and to cling to your grace and to your mercy and to your truth. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. One of my seminary professors wrote a book called Design for Dignity. In the beginning of that book, he recounts a time when he was traveling and he picked up a newspaper and he, the, art, uh, the title of an article caught his eye, The Irony of Being Human. And so he read that article and he goes on to recount that this is basically what the article it was about. It was about how at the same place, at the same time, something very uh, strange happened um, and led to the irony of being human. It was a hotel room, it was, or a hotel, not just a hotel room. It was a hotel. On the same night, two very different things happened. Um, one, one was that in a room, there was a woman who had left her husband and her children for a new man. But she had found out that evening that her new man was leaving her. Uh, and so she decided to take her own life. And in the note that she left when she took her life, she said, don't cry for me. I'm not even human anymore. 
The author of the article goes on to recount that that same night in that same hotel down in the conference ballroom, there was a meeting of the New Age movement where all uh, those that were gathered there that night chanted together in unison, I am God, I am God, I am God. So the author goes on to write this as the last sentence of the article. The irony of being human is that people in the same time and same place can have such contradictory views of themselves. It's kind of an old story, an older book, but I'll never forget. uh, I think that's how he opens the book. I'll never forget that line. And I think there's something that there in that last line that rings true for all of us, because I think we all know to some degree personally the ups and downs of how we view ourselves and how we treat ourselves even. Uh, We know the blindness of pride. The blindness of conceit and selfishness. We also know the crippling pain of shame or self-loathing or guilt. We know that these things can happen uh, from one day to the next in different forms. And we wonder wonder to ourselves, how is it that I in the same time and same places can have such contradictory views of myself? It seems sometimes that we're alienated even from our own selves. And so we wonder, maybe not, you know, maybe you don't go back to your room tonight wondering these questions necessarily, but we wonder, who are we? What does it mean to be human? How can I learn to love myself yet not fall prey to some sort of narcissistic idolatry of myself? Or how can I be humble without hating myself to get there? The answers to these questions and and a lot more, if we have more time, I think are here in Genesis chapter 1 when God says, let us make man in our image. What does it mean to be human. It means simply to bear the image of God in the world. And it's been that way since the beginning. So I want to look at four things for you. Um, ref- and they all start with R because I went to seminary and that's what we learned. Um, <laughs> not, not necessarily. Um, but re- what does it mean to be truly human and to bear the image of God? We're reflectors, we're relators, we're rulers, and we're resters. The first thing is reflectors. And think about this is a weird question, but I think this fits. When you look in a mirror, what do you see? I'm not trying to be tricky, but just think about it. What is it that you're seeing? In a sense, you want to say, well, I see me. Yes, you do see you, but what is in the mirror that you are seeing is not you. Because you are you, right? What you see in a mirror is your reflection. Uh, your image, right? It, it, it reflects your image back to you so you can kind of process it. Um, we read here in Genesis chapter 1 that God determined, that God willed, and that God said, let us make man in our image. And so when we break that down simply, it tells us at least two things. One, it tells us we're not God, okay? Because God is God and we're us. We're his image. We're not him. He is him and we are us, right? Right? Secondly, it says, but we are his image. We image him. We reflect something about him. Uh, We bear his likeness in the world. We know uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 19, right, that the heavens declare the glory of God. But what we read in Genesis chapter 1 is that to crown everything that he's made, God crowns his creation with man male and female, and creates them in His image, to bear His image, to reflect His glory 
in the world. And I think it's just the simplest way of thinking about it, the simplest definition of what it means to be human and what it means to bear the image of God in the world. And so to ponder the question, what is, what is the image of God, is, I think, the same as pondering what does it mean to be human. What does it mean to be human? It means to bear the image of God in the world. Now, what does that mean? There's different ways that we can answer that. Some people think, well, maybe it's like the fact that he gave us rationality or spoken language or all these different things that we could point out that that humans are unique in creation over and against other creatures. But what if, just kind of making a leap here, what if all the ways maybe you've ever tried or are trying right now to think about what does it mean to bear the image of God in the world as uh, as the crown of his creation? What if it's not so much something in you as it is something about you? What if it is not so much about something in you, some quality you possess, rather if it's something about you? Namely, I would suggest to you the relationship that God established with us from the beginning. Because when He created all things, He did not create anything the way that He created us. Why? Because He determined that we would bear His image in His creation. And by doing that, he established a unique relationship with us. So the image of God is not something, not so much something that we have or can do, but it's rather seen and defined by our relationship to him as our creator. Uh, and we have that relationship like no other creature in creation has. One way I thought about this is, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you can talk about a child being the spitting image of their parent, right? Uh, it could be physical appearance. Uh, it could be the way they act, which is usually, in my case, what happens. Um, all the negative ways they act usually point back to me. It's great. Uh, but I'll never forget when we had our first child. There's, there's just, you know, there's something amazing about that and everything. Um, and, you know, you wonder what he's going to look like. And even when he's born, you wonder, like, what is he going to look like when he's older? But even without knowing any, you know, how he's, what his personality is going to look like, what exactly he's going to look like when he gets older, you know, the first time you hold your child, you know without a doubt, he is mine. I'm his father. He is my son. And nothing can change that. And, and to drive that point even further home... Um, I, feel, I felt the same thing with my youngest son. For those of you who don't know, I do, we adopted our younger son, youngest son. He looks nothing like me. Uh, and I think he has a lot of behavior traits that aren't like us, right? Uh, he has brown skin. But the moment we adopted him, there was just something there that said, you are mine. You belong to me and I belong to you. I think at least the most foundational expression or understanding what it means to bear the image of God or that to understand what does it mean that we are the image of God is to understand that God in the beginning established that with mankind. You are mine. You will be mine and I will be yours uh, above everything else that I have made. Because, I mean, here's another way to think about this uh, to further kind of drive this home. Think about this. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, what does he mean? Does he mean that because Jesus was a man, that that's how we understand that? Well, guess what? We don't have any drawings of Jesus. Uh, from all that we can tell, which isn't much, just nobody really de- describes his physical appearance. He was a pretty regular looking guy. No one ever allows his great appearance or godly appearance or anything like that. Uh, he's a pretty regular guy. So why is it that in him we see... 
the image of the invisible God. The author of Hebrews says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. How do we know that about Jesus? How do the biblical authors know that about Jesus? Well, the Bible makes clear, I think over and over again, the Bible makes clear that if we want to see the true image of God, we see it in Jesus. And then the Bible goes on to say that our salvation is actually unto the end of being conformed to that image, the image of the Son, the image of Jesus. And so what I think we can understand is that Jesus truly and perfectly reflects the image of God because Jesus has and always had a perfect relationship with the Father. I think that's what the New Testament writers are getting at. So, true humanness, then, bearing the image of God, if you want to understand it at its most foundational level, it is found in personal communion with this God. That is what He created us for. That's what we were created for. And then when you read the rest of the Bible, that's also what we're being saved for. To have that personal communion with God, to have it restored um, even though we rebelled and sinned against him. We are reflectors. As the image of God, we are reflectors of him. Uh, and really, that first one is kind of the foundational. All the three, the rest of these three kind of are ways that we reflect his image in the world. So let's move on. Um, relators. And we'll, we'll definitely dive in this more as we look at Genesis 2 next week. But for now, look at verse 26. It stands out when you read the whole account of chapter 1, verse 26 stands out because in the first 25 verses, uh, the writer of Genesis has had no problem using the singular pronoun for God. He did this or he did that. Or, um, or God even saying I. But in verse 26, all of a sudden we read, let us make man in our image. Something very profound and fundamental to Christianity. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it's explicit here in this passage. But what is being alluded to is that God is a perfect trinity of persons in one Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect, loving, and glorifying personal communion. C.S. Lewis described it like this in Mere Christianity. He said, in Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing, uh, nor a static thing. Not even just one person, but a dynamic pulsating activity, a life, a kind of drama, and almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. And so whatever that is, and as profound as that is, it's into that image that we're created. Whatever the love and delight that is exchanged and has been exchanged for eternity between the persons of the Trinity, we are being told when God determined, let us make man in our image, that God was inviting us to partake in that. I don't know if you remember this uh, in the Gospels. Some guys come and they're trying to, as they always did, try to trap Jesus by asking him a question. And they asked him, what is the greatest commandment? Do you remember what his answer was? You can sum it up in one word. Love. Now, that's a really popular saying these days. say, God is love, right? But what is the foundation for that? But Jesus' answer was love. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God above everything and love your neighbor as yourself. You could sum the greatest commandment of all the Bible into one word, love. So to be truly human according to Jesus and the rest of Scripture is to live our lives entirely founded and centered upon another and others. We were created to be relators, to relate 
That is how we bear the image of God. It's part and parcel. It's written into the fabric of our DNA. This is why, y'all, love feels so good. This is why you want people to like you. This is why you want to know whether she loves you or whether he loves you. This is why you want the hearts on Instagram or Twitter or whatever. The light. I don't know what social media y'all are using these days. I'm behind. But we are formatted and hardwired for life-giving relationships and community. And we crave it. This is why loneliness nearly physically hurts. Can cause us such deep... Even the thought of being lonely can hurt us at times, right? Because written into the fabric of our DNA is life-giving relationships and community, and we wither without it. This is why there's actually a lot of states that have been outlawing solitary confinement as cruel and unusual punishment because the study, the research, has shown how damaging solitary confinement can be, both physically and mentally and emotionally. We, we wither without life-giving relationships and community. This is also why verse 27, I love verse 27, why man together with the woman stand as the crown of creation. Both of them together. It's not man by himself. It's not the male by himself as the crown of creation. It's male and female together standing equal in dignity. They together for us show us the crown of creation and bearing what it is to bear the image of God. And what is their mandate? What is the mandate that God gives them? The first thing he says in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply. I don't know where you go with that, but usually we're like, okay, they're, they're supposed to have babies, I guess, right? But it's so much more than that. It's about bearing His image. That, that is the mandate because it's part and parcel of bearing the image. To give life and to invite others into the circle of loving community. Because that's exactly what God did when He created us. And so our mandate is to do the same. And part of the ways that we do that is by having children, right? And there's so much I could say here, but I do want to say at least this. Because I think we've completely lost this view of children, of having children. What, what is the American dream? Anecdotally, the American dream is what? The white picket fence, a dog, and 2.5 children, right? However that's supposed to work out. Um, but really, I don't know how you think about it. I haven't had this conversation with many of you. But the way we think about it in our culture, having children is kind of that commodity. Like, if we have time, we'll have children. If we have money, we'll have children. If we get to the right place in our careers, maybe we'll have children. Yeah, that would be nice. Um, you know, we wonder about things like divorce. Why is it that divorce, no matter how old or young someone is when their parents get divorced, why that has such a long-lasting impact on their life? Or why the abuse uh, of a parent has such wide-ranging effects in people's lives? Because here the picture is... It's not merely about increasing numbers, but increasing and spreading love and relationship out into the world. Because that is what God did when He created us. And guess what? I can tell you, I got four kids. It's going to cost you a lot. (laughs) It's going to cost you a lot of energy and patience and a lot of things, right? But it cost God as well when He created us, and it was worth it. To invite us in to what he had in himself before time in the Trinity. This is why Keller, why I agree with Tim Keller when he says that there is no more profound human relationship than that of a husband and wife. Now, 
I don't take that to mean um, that you're only truly human if you're married. But what we see there is that the complementarity of man and woman united in covenant is a reflection for the world. And more on this next week as we look at Genesis 2. But it's a reflection for the world of what God intends to have with his people. And so we listen to things like what Paul, who wasn't married when he wrote this at least, so how does he talk about it? He says in Ephesians 5, this mis- when he talks about marriage, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and his church. Jesus is the true, perfect image of God because he had a perfect relationship with his Father. And we cannot truly reflect the image of God or be truly human outside of that relationship. And what we also can't do is we cannot do it alone. We were never intended to. Ever. I don't know what kind of life you live as a student, whether you pour yourself into your work or whether you pour yourself into your not work, however you fill in the blank of the not work, right? But question worth asking yourself is, do you ever stop? You may be surrounded by people and all the different activities that you do, but have you ever actually stopped to get to know someone? Even more importantly, have you ever stopped long enough to let someone actually get to know you? Who you actually really are? What is actually going on with you? We have a problem with this in the South. It's like, how are you doing? Fine. Doesn't matter what's going on in your life. Fine is the answer. Um, We cannot be truly human alone. And again, as Paul talks about the church and the community of God growing up in uh, to Christ, he says, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. We are relators and we're hardwired for it. We're hardwired for each other. Let's move on. Next thing he talks about is God gives them this mandate as image bearers in his creation is that we're rulers. Uh, And so another part of bearing God's image is our unique responsibility. And the way that God describes it, he says we're to exercise dominion. And it's a weird, it's not a word we use uh, a lot, but we're to exercise dominion. You have to, on one second, just for a second, take into account um, the context of what it meant uh, what, what the original hearers would have heard when they heard the word images. In ancient, ancient Near Eastern culture and forward into history, when a ruler would take over a land or an empire or whatever, he would spread his image throughout the land to make his dominion, to make his rule known. Right? And you have that question where Jesus is asked uh, about paying taxes. You remember what he says? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Well, how did they know what was Caesar's? The coin. Why? Because it bore his image, right? One, I don't know how well you remember Operation Iraqi Freedom. Don't bring that up for any political purposes. But one of the enduring images of Operation um, Iraqi Freedom, I guess 15 years ago now, uh, was in Saddam Hussein's hometown when they tore down his statue. And all the people of the village are coming out and taking their shoes off and hitting the head of the statue with their shoes, right? Why? Because it represented his rule, his dominion over their lives in so many ways. And so what the, God, what the God of the universe says out of the gate here in Genesis 1 to his fresh out of slavery people is you are my image in my world. And so you're to exercise dominion in my world on my behalf. And so it's not saying 
That we're allowed to just go out and use creation however we see fit. No, we're to be rulers of God's creation to the extent that He rules His creation. How does He rule His creation? With benevolence and care, with love. He brings order where there was chaos. He brings fullness where there's emptiness. He fosters and protects life. And that is what we are called to do. One example of this, this is why the Bible, the entire Bible... From beginning to end, over and above all the pagan cultures and religions that, it, that the people of God found themselves in throughout history, urged the caring, for the caring of the poor, the downtrodden, and the oppressed. It is throughout Scripture. One of the recurring indictments against Israel in the Old Testament was that they did not take care of the poor. One of the defining characteristics of the early church, both in the New Testament and from people who witnessed it, was that they welcomed the poor in and took care of them. You know, it's fashionable, taking care of the poor, charity, whatever, it's, it's pretty fashionable in our day. But we cannot kid ourselves, it's a uniquely biblical idea. No other culture came up with it on their own in the history of the world. Another thing we have to admit there, though, Is that the church, the people of God, especially in our country and in our recent generations, has gotten this very wrong at times. But when we've gotten it wrong, it's because we've completely ignored what has been clear scripture that we're to rule in such a way that takes care uh, of others and takes care of this world and this creation that God has put us in. But another thing that we're being told here, and this one may be the one you really don't like, is that there's work to be done. Greek mythology has coming out of Pandora's box, three things, right? Death, decay, and work. As if those three things go together, right? But what the Bible tells us, what God's story of the beginning tells us, is that work has its origination in the beginning. Before the fall, it was part of bearing God's image. So part of bearing God's image is a twofold dignity. Who we are and what we do. Who we are and what we do, they go together. Work finds its existence in creation. If you grew up in church, maybe you heard a familiar verse in the New Testament where Paul says, whether you eat or sleep, do all of it to the glory of God, right? It's one of those things that we put on our lockers um, during a rough test week or something. I don't know. I don't know if you did that in high school. Maybe I didn't. Um, It sounds great, but why is it so hard? To view work most of the time as anything but a drudgery or like a necessary evil, just a means to an end. I think there's there's many reasons there, but I think one of it is that we have forgotten the dignity of what it is to bear the image of God. It's not only about who we are, but it's also about what we do and what God has called us to do in this life with the gifts that he's given us. We reflect his image in the way that we work. You bear God's image in the way that you work. That's an encouragement. That's an empowerment. The problem is, instead of believing and living into the inherent dignity of who we are and what we've been called to do, what we've done in our culture, and we just keep building, we do it to each other, we do it to ourselves, is we enslave ourselves to the lie that we are what we do. There's inherent dignity in who we are and what we do, But the lie is that you are what you do. And that's what we keep living into. Brene Brown, I think she gets at this. I don't know if you've ever heard of Brene Brown or TED Talk or her book. Uh, The one I got this out of is Daring Greatly. Uh, She's a self-proclaimed shame expert. And when you read her, you'll agree. Um, 
But she says this. She just kind of talks about how, how people in our culture today talk about how everybody's narcissistic. And this is what she says. When I look at narcissism, I look at it through the vulnerability lens. And I see the shame-based fear of being ordinary. I see the cultural messaging everywhere that says that an ordinary life is a meaningless life. I know the, they, the yearning to believe that what I'm doing matters and how easy, though, it is to confuse that with the drive to be extraordinary. I know you all feel this because in five years of campus ministry, I think this is the one thing that stuck out to me. Is that y'all are crushed under this weight that you've got to be something just to the moon special whether your mom told you you were supposed to be or that you could be, whatever. Um, but what we're told here in Genesis 1 is that in God's economy, all persons and work are endowed with dignity. All of it. You know, the great call of your generation, both outside and inside the church, is to do extraordinary things. And I encourage you, do extraordinary things, but don't live for it. Because if you try to live for it, you will die. You will wither under that crushing expectation. I think we have nearly crushed an entire generation with the lie that you can be anything you want to be. That is a lie. I want to play football for Mississippi State. That is never going to happen. Or, I mean, if they could let me try, but I would die. I would literally die, I think. (laughs) If you cannot find glory and dignity in the ordinary, then you will exhaust yourself on the never-ending treadmill of trying to be extraordinary. What this tells us is you are extraordinary. It's just a fact. Because you bear the image of God in the world. All of us. All of you. Everyone. Who they are and what they do. The final one here is resters. And this is really um, where the whole creation account actually leads. It's all structured to get us to this seventh day. While man undoubtedly is God's crown of his creation, the whole point is the seventh day. Written in, let this soak in for a minute. I know it's hard to believe after a five day weekend. Written into the fabric of creation was rest. I will never forget sitting in a coffee shop with a girl, going over a lot of things that were going on in her life at the time. And I will never forget her saying this. You don't even need context. She said, the thought of rest gives me anxiety. I about fell out of my chair. The thought of rest gives me anxiety. I don't know if that hits home with you. It's interesting, we get later... So one of the Ten Commandments calls us explicitly to remember this seventh day weekly. And the justification for that commandment that God gives is He links it back to this six-in-one pattern in creation. A recurring indictment against God's people throughout the Old Testament was that they profaned the Sabbath. They wouldn't rest. God said, I want you to rest. And they said, no, no thanks. Some of you know how tired you are and you're like, why would they do that? Why are you doing it to yourself? And throughout all of God's people's history, God's rest has continually been an invitation to His people to share in fellowship with Him. You see how creation now comes full circle. We're created in His image because we have this special relationship to Him. He's our Creator God. We owe Him everything. 
And this invitation to rest is an invitation to share in his fellowship. I'll end with this. In Hebrews chapter 4, the author of Hebrews uh, brings up the Israelites of the Old Testament. He talks about how the rebellious Israelites, what the main thing that they failed to do was that they failed to enter God's rest. When they're in the wilderness and they grumbled and they grumbled and they grumbled, he said they failed to enter God's rest. And then he takes that story and he tries to apply it to us and he says this, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now listen to this. Now therefore let us strive to enter that rest. I love that because it seems so contradictory, doesn't it? Let us strive to enter that rest. So what we're being told by the author of Hebrews there is that there's there's work left to do. But how? And this is why I think this actually is the, the, the end of um, the, the, the initial account of creation. Is that the, sh- the Sabbath shows us at the end of creation that the God who says let there be is also the God that invites us to hear and to know that he also says it's finished. Most of you are living your lives with this gap of incompleteness. You think it's, it, the next thing is always up to you. It's always up to you. It's always up to you. The Sabbath invites you to hear and to know. The God who said let there be is also the God that says it is finished. And you see where I'm going with that, right? How would he ultimately do that? He would ultimately do it in his son. person of his son from a cross who cried out with his last breath. It is finished. So to live in the image of God, to live in the image of this God, to know who you are, to know what to do in this life, the image of this creator, this consummator, this alpha, this omega, is to rest in who he is and what he has done. That is the dignity all of us have been endowed with And are invited to embrace and to rest in. Never read this book, but I love this quote from the Velveteen Rabbit. Um, When the Velveteen Rabbit asks, the character's name is Skin Horse. Um, Go figure. But Velveteen Rabbit asks Skin Horse, what is real? And this is the horse's reply. Real isn't how you're made. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. It doesn't happen all at once. And by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off. But once you are real, you cannot become unreal again. It lasts for always. What does it mean to be truly human? That's it. Invited into this relationship, this fellowship with this creator to bear his image in the world in love and in dignity. In who you are and what you do. That's the invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have endowed us 
with unspeakable dignity. That you've clothed us in infinite love just by how you've made us. And then how much more that you've redeemed us and restored us. So much so that we can say that we are new creations. And that it's real. And that it lasts for always. Father, our hearts long to know this. In the ways that we relate to one another. In the ways that we go about our work. In the ways that we long to rest. Would you lead us into your rest, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.